0: Good morning. Good morning. All right. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel at Iwakuni. As always, it is uh, such a blessing to gather together with you guys to worship our Lord and Savior. I want to welcome those who are new. You uh, see some uh, newer faces. Pray that the Lord uh, ministers to your heart as you gather with us. Looking forward to all that he has in store today. Today, we are going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through the gospel account of Luke and we're going to be talking and looking at, talking about and, and looking at the topic of greatness. Um, greatness is something that is uh, talked about a lot these days. People strive for it, uh, discipline themselves to achieve it, and, and they love to debate about it, uh, especially in the world of sports. I don't know how many sports fans we have here uh, today. Uh, this last week has had a lot of talk about greatness you know when it comes to sports uh, in case you didn't hear uh, nba uh, icon uh, lebron james he broke the all-time scoring record this last week uh, no person has scored more points in their nba career than lebron james uh, the previous record holder was the hall of fame center kareem abdul jabbar who held the scoring record for over 38 years Uh, And with the passing of Kareem, many sports talk shows and and columnists have looked to discuss the question of who is the greatest basketball player of all time, or who's the greatest scorer of all time. While LeBron may have scored more points than anyone else, was he the best at doing it? Uh, and, And how do we answer that question? Do we just use total points scored as the standard? What about Average points scored per game over an entire career. Would this be a better indicator of just how good someone was at scoring the basketball? If so, then you'd have to say that Michael Jordan is the greatest scorer of all time. He averaged more points per game than any other player in NBA history over an entire career. Or or, or what about the player who had the most points in a single game, or maybe the single highest average over one season? Uh, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in one game, and he averaged over 50 points a game in the early 1960s. You see, the difficulty in answering the question is that there are so many different ways to measure greatness when it comes to basketball. The same is true of other sports, like football. You know, this week is uh, the Super Bowl, okay, tomorrow. Uh, Morning and and, uh, the same sort of talks circulating about greatness and and uh, are being had within um, columnists and sports talk shows uh, regarding NFL players. You know who's the greatest football player of all time. You know, people have their opinions and their debates. Is it Tom Brady with his seven Super Bowl championships and five Super Bowl MVPs? Uh, What about Joe Montana, right? He won all four of the Super Bowls he played in. He was named MVP in three of those four. He never once threw an interception in the Super Bowl. Brady lost three Super Bowls and had six interceptions over his career in the big game. Or then there's Montana's teammate, Jerry Rice. He owns nearly every career receiving record there is in the NFL. And then there's others like, you know, people might talk about Walter Payton or Jim Brown or Lawrence Taylor or Otto Graham, different guys that play different positions from different eras. It's difficult to say with certainty who the greatest football player of all time is, just as it is difficult to identify the greatest basketball player of all time. How do we evaluate greatness in sports? Is it purely by championships, won, or, or do we take into account how long someone played, what position they played, what era they played in, or, or maybe even their individual impact upon the sport as uh, a whole overall? And because there is no surefire way to evaluate individual gritness in a team sport, the debates and the discussions will continue on and on probably forever, or at least till the Lord comes back for us. In our portion of Scripture today, we are going to come across a familiar scene where the disciples find themselves once again arguing over greatness and who was going to be the greatest amongst them. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. And the title of our study this morning is going to be Preparing for Greatness. Okay, preparing for greatness. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to Open up and make your way to Luke chapter 22 if you haven't done so already. And then once you're there, I'd like to invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord and His Word as I read through our text this morning. Again, we're in Luke chapter 22. I want to encourage you, follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke records the following for us in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, But now, he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to open your word. Just allow your word to, to speak to us, um, to minister to us, um, to encourage and strengthen, edify, challenge, Lord, just to do whatever it is you desire to do in and through your word and, and through this time of study. So, Lord, we surrender and we yield ourselves to you and, and your spirit and your word. Looking forward to hearing from you, looking forward to just gleaning what you would have for us to take with us this morning. We give you this time, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our opening verse begins with the disciples, or excuse me, a depiction of an argument that broke out between the disciples about individual greatness and, and who should be considered the Greatest. Now, it's very important that we understand the overall flow of what's taking place here in regard to the context. We last left off in our study of Luke's gospel with Jesus dropping a bombshell about how one of his disciples was going to betray him. Now, we know from reading Luke's account and our own knowledge of the scriptures that Jesus was referring to Judas as the one who would betray him. But when Jesus dropped this bombshell of an announcement, the disciples had no idea who the betrayer could be. They all questioned among themselves which of them it could be. At first, you know, we get the sense that they came in humility, wondering if it were possible that it could be them that would betray him. The other gospel writers acknowledge how each asked one by one, is it I? And another would come to Jesus and say, is it I, Jesus? Am I the one? But it would appear that their humility and their meekness was short-lived. For it would appear that right after they asked Jesus if it could be them and started questioning one another, their pride seemingly kicked in and asserted how it couldn't be them. For they started to argue about who was the greatest among themselves. I can see how it played out in my own mind's eye. Beginning with humility, they asked Jesus if it was them, and and then they started turning to one another, asking each other who it could be. This, no doubt, led to the disciples talking about their own position and their own status amongst the group, how it couldn't be them because of what they had done and because of their own perceived greatness. As each disciple started talking about what made them unlikely candidates for betraying Jesus, it turned into one of those reoccurring arguments about which of them was the greatest. You know, I could see Peter making his case about his own greatness by referencing the fact that he was the only one who walked on water and how he was the one that properly identified Jesus back in Caesarea Philippi and how Jesus said he was blessed with revelation from the Heavenly Father. I can even imagine some of the other disciples probably retorting with how Peter nearly drowned to death as he began to sink into the sea out on that water. And I maybe some of them even may have reminded Peter about how soon after he identified Jesus as the Christ, Jesus referred to him as Satan and rebuked him. Perhaps Judas was trying to make a case for himself, giving as evidence the fact that Jesus had trusted him above all the others to be the one in charge of holding the bunny box. He was the one given that responsibility, that position of authority to be in control of the finances. Maybe the brothers James and John focused upon their numerous opportunities to have extra time with the Lord, how they were special and obviously part of the inner circle of the greatest amongst the disciples. You know, Andrew could have clamored in about how none of them would have even known about Jesus if he hadn't first told them about him, how it was him who brought Peter and some of the others to Jesus in the first place. Perhaps Matthew piped in talking about how he had the most dramatic of transformations amongst them. How he used to be a tax collector and how his transformation, his conversion account, his sacrifice was greatest. And how there was no way that he could ever go back. He could never betray him and that qualified him to be considered one of the greatest. You know, whatever they said, we can't be for certain. But what we do know is that there was enough uncertainty amongst them that it led them to fighting amongst each other about who would be the greatest. And this, unfortunately, was not the first time the disciples had this kind of argument. In fact, the scriptures highlight at least three different times when the disciples got angry with each other and fought amongst themselves in regard to greatness and position in God's kingdom. Earlier in our study of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, we read of the disciples arguing over the same thing and how Jesus confronted them using a little child as an object lesson to teach them that he who is least among them would be the greatest. Then a little bit later, the disciples once again were angered with each other over position and prominence within the kingdom when James and John used their mama to try and secure their spots at Jesus' right and left when he entered into his kingdom, this quiet... This caused quite the uh, commotion amongst the other disciples. They were very angry with them uh, for their power play here. And then here we have them again during the Passover feast fighting about who was going to be the greatest. Now, Jesus is going to respond to the disciples disputing over greatness to once again highlight what was most important when it comes to greatness in God's kingdom. Jesus will be leaving them shortly, and he needs to prepare them and get them ready for what it will be like in the kingdom and how they can be counted as great in God's kingdom. I want you guys to realize and and note that every time they fought about greatness, Jesus never rebuked them for having a desire to be great. You guys realize that? He never said, you guys shouldn't care about being great whatsoever, okay? Don't even think about that. No, he said, no, 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 being great is good, but this is the way to greatness okay? If you want to be great, which I hope you you do right that's good, but this is the way to achieve greatness right and I hope for ourselves that we have that same desire in our own hearts that we want to be great for the Lord, that we want to have an impact upon the kingdom of God and Jesus is going to instruct us as well as the disciples here on what it means to be great, how to prepare for greatness and what greatness is all about. So let's take a look at Jesus' initial response to the disciples fighting amongst each other about their greatness. Read verses 25 through 27. It says, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Pause right there. Jesus, he once again instructs his disciples about how the way to greatness in his kingdom is different from how those in the world seek after greatness. Jesus spoke about how the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over people and how those in authority are referred to as benefactors. The wording here suggests how these kinds of rulers and authority figures often would dominate and oppress their subjects. They would exploit them and they would lord over them. But Jesus said, But not so among you. We are not to operate the same way as the world operates. Christ-like leadership does not look to lord over other people or to exploit other people. Jesus said, on the contrary, he who is great, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. It's our first point that we're going to make this morning, and it's this. Greatness in God's kingdom is all about serving Christ and serving others. Okay? It is about taking the place of of the lesser, about taking the place of the younger, taking the place of the servant. As believers in Christ, we are all called to serve. The word serve here in the Greek is associated with the idea of ministering. Now, somewhere along the line, unfortunately, I believe, the church got things mixed up And started thinking that it was only the pastor's responsibility to minister to the people, that ministering and ministry is only for those in church leadership. This is not the way God meant for his church to be. We are all called to ministry, we are all called to serve one another. Jesus said in John's gospel, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. You see, being a servant means being a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are called to serve. You are called to minister you are part of the body of Christ and God has given each of us a gift that we may minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. And so, what has God given you that you may share it with the body, that you may minister it to one another as the scriptures proclaim? You know, instead of coming to church and thinking, you know, what does this church have to offer me? Or, or how can this church serve me and, and my needs and my family's needs? We should come with a heart and a mind that thinks, what do I have to offer this church? How can I be a blessing to the people around me in this church? How can I serve them and be a blessing to them? You know, if the church would stop thinking like the world thinks and started looking for opportunity to serve others and to bless those around them, then the church would start to look like the church meant, the church God meant it to be. A place filled with servants that genuinely cared about one another and sought to minister to one another. And Jesus demonstrated this servant leadership approach to them as he took the place of the servant and he washed the disciples' feet there in the upper room. It's not recorded here in Luke, but in John's gospel, we know that when they, he, when they had finished the supper, Jesus rose to wash all the disciples' feet, taking the place of a servant. This was contrary to the way the world worked. In the world, it was the greater who sat at the table, was served, but not so in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, he who takes the place of a servant is the greater. Greatness is And God's kingdom is all about service. It's about serving God, and it's about serving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, let's continue in our text. We'll see what else Jesus had to say. Read with me verses 28 through 30. He says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus continued his lesson on greatness by reminding them of the future positions and rewards that awaited them in his kingdom. Jesus spoke about how he bestowed upon them a kingdom, just as the Father bestowed a kingdom upon him. That word bestowed, it speaks of something that has been assigned to someone or passed along to someone. It often correlates to something that is left for someone in regard to a will or a last testament. A kingdom was assigned to Jesus, and as Jesus prepares to depart the disciples, he assures them that the kingdom will be left to them to continue, and that one day they would be reunited to partake at Jesus' table in his kingdom. Also, he speaks of their future positions as leaders, sitting upon thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And what that exactly means is debated. It could be taken literally that the twelve disciples will rule over the twelve tribes of Israel when Jesus establishes His kingdom. It could refer to the twelve disciples overseeing the future kingdom as a whole, including both Jews and Gentiles. There are a couple problems with those interpretations. Like, well, what about Judas? Is, you know, he's not going to be that. So, who's going to be the twelfth? Is it going to be Matthias? Is it going to be Paul? And you know, people want to argue that. Uh, I don't think that's the point. Okay. Or it could be referring to Jesus' disciples in general who are part of the millennial kingdom to come, ruling over those who will live to see those days. And I'm not certain as to which, if any of these ideas is correct. And I don't think it's the major point Jesus is trying to make. It's not the point I want to make. To me... The major emphasis here is upon the fact that these disciples had stuck with Jesus through all of his trials. These disciples were with Jesus through the highs and through the lows. No matter what came, they stood by his side and they continued with him despite what others were saying. Despite how things were changing, they continued to follow Jesus. And I think the major point Jesus was making was the need for faithfulness in his kingdom. If you want to be considered great, you must be a servant, but you also must be faithful. Okay? You must persevere and continue in your service through all the highs and all the lows. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about the needed qualities and character of stewards and servants of God. Paul writes, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Okay? God is looking for faithful men and women who will continue to answer the call to service through all of the highs and all of the lows. Greatness in God's kingdom requires that we continue to serve God throughout all of our days. You see, our walk with the Lord should be consistent. And no doubt, we will have highs and lows. We will go through the valleys, and we will have mountaintop experiences We will have seasons of want and seasons of plenty, seasons of trials and seasons of triumphs. But those who are great will continue to serve the Lord through all of life's various seasons and circumstances. The ability to be available, okay, availability, and to be there is one of the most overlooked abilities of all. Can you be counted upon to answer the call day in and day out? God is looking for faithful stewards who will continue to walk with him all of their days. And this may sound difficult for some of us, if not all of us. But rest assured, God will supply us the power we need to serve him faithfully. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 attests, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah proclaims, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We will be found faithful as we rely upon God and his spirits working inside of us to equip us and to strengthen us for the call of service God has upon our lives. It will not be because of our resiliency or because of our own fortitude that we will remain faithful, but it will be the result of God's spirit working inside of you, looking to his spirit to give you what you need day by day. Let's continue in our text. Take a look at what happens next in verses 31 and 32. Says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Okay, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to our walk and what it takes to be great in God's kingdom here in these verses. For whatever reason, we see here that Jesus, he turned to Simon Peter and he specifically addressed him and warned him of what was going on behind the scenes, unbeknownst to him. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, the interesting thing to note here is that the you in verse 31 is actually plural. And form. Satan had asked for each of Jesus' disciples. Yea, he had asked that he may sift each and every one of them as wheat. This particular Greek word for sifting, it's only used this once in the Bible, and it's used figuratively to speak of Satan's desire to agitate and test the disciples through trials and afflictions. It reminds me of the book of Job and how Satan came before the Lord, requested the Lord, allow him to test Job. God spoke highly of his servant Job. He was a a great servant. There was none like him. The Lord boasted of him. But Satan basically accused God of protecting Job and spoiling Job with blessings that abounded in every single direction. And permission was granted to Satan to do whatever he wanted to Job as long as he didn't take his life. If you're familiar with the account, you know that Job experienced great loss. Great heartache, pain and sufferings that we can barely even begin to imagine. And yet through it all, Job would not curse God. He would not turn from the Lord. Satan had to have permission to sift the disciples. And he had to have permission to attack Job. And this leads me to believe that God has established certain boundaries wherewith Satan is permitted to operate. I believe that God is sovereign over all of his creation, that nothing happens to us that God is unaware of, okay? God is never surprised by what occurs to us in our daily lives, and God permits things to happen that he knows will work out for our good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 promises that all things work together for God, to those who love God, to those who, for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, even the pains and the sufferings, the difficulties, the attacks of the enemy. God uses them all for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God has a plan and a purpose in everything he allows to come our way. God was at work in Peter's life, and he is at work in our lives as well. Though Satan had asked to sift all of the disciples. Jesus specifically tells Peter that he has prayed for him. The you in verse 32 is singular, okay? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, I've prayed for you specifically. Satan's asked for all of you, but Peter, I want you to know I have prayed for you specifically, okay? Jesus shared this message as a source of encouragement. Peter could face the challenges of life knowing that Jesus was praying for him, that Jesus had interceded specifically on his behalf. You know, in the book of John, we get an idea of the kind of prayer Jesus may have prayed for Peter as John records the prayers of Jesus that were shared there in the upper room. John tells us that Jesus prayed for his own. He prayed for his disciples, the ones God had given to him, and he prayed to the Father saying, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus didn't want to, or Jesus didn't pray, to have his disciples removed from the world okay, and the effects of this world that we live in. It's a, a fallen world. Okay? He didn't say, I want you to be removed from those trials and sufferings we experience in this fallen world. But he did pray that his disciples be kept from the evil one. The meaning of that word, to keep, it means to keep an eye on or to watch over, to, be, uh, to have guard over. Jesus prayed that they would be, or that they would be protected from Satan. And that Satan wouldn't be able to destroy them or or take them for himself. Peter would be comforted by the fact that Jesus had prayed and continued to pray for him. And we too ought to take with us the same assurance and encouragement regarding our own lives. You see, the author of Hebrews writes how Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, for those who come to God through Christ. Hebrews 7.25 tells us of that. The meaning behind the word lives, it speaks of Christ's existence. He exists. He continues on forever and ever so that he may intercede for all who come to him through faith. Christ died and he rose again and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. According to Romans chapter 8 verse 34. John writes, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate before the Father, one who pleads our case, one who stands for us, one who intercedes on our behalf. What a great source of comfort and encouragement that should be for us. Whatever we are going through, we are not going through it alone. Jesus is with us, and he is praying for us. He is interceding on our behalf before the Father. And what specifically did Jesus pray for Peter? We're told that he prayed specifically that Peter's faith not fail. Jesus knew that the enemy was going to come against Peter. He knew that Peter was going to go through a great trial, a great difficulty, and he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail him. And if you're familiar with his account, you know that the Lord did answer that prayer. If you know the account, you do know that Peter's courage failed him. He did lose hope, but he never lost his faith. He never stopped believing in who Jesus was. He denied knowing the Lord, but we know that he didn't mean those things and that he merely said them to try and protect himself. For the moment he caught eyes with the Lord, that when that rooster crowed after the third time, he denied him. He caught eyes with the Lord. And Luke, t- Luke 22, 62 tells us how he, he wept, and he wept bitterly, fleeing from that place, brokenhearted over realizing what he had done, how he had crumbled in fear before the Lord. Peter still believed in the Lord. He still loved the Lord. He simply allowed fear to get the best of him in that moment and he lost hope. He saw his Lord being bound and led away to the religious authorities. He saw him being questioned and mocked and struck. He heard the people trying to present their case against him and he was afraid to get caught up in all of it. He didn't understand what was going on. He couldn't figure out what Jesus was doing and and why he was allowing these things to take place. And maybe you're here this morning and you can relate to Peter. You believe in the Lord. You know, you definitely have a a great love for Him, but maybe your hope has been shaken. Perhaps you're going through a situation where, like Peter, you you can't make sense of it, and you don't quite understand what God is doing and, and how He's going to work together for good as He promises. My encouragement to you, do not lose hope. Jesus is praying for you. He is interceding for you before the Father. He is intimately aware of what you are going through. Do not lose hope. Do not allow your faith to be shaken. Trust in the Lord and his plans and purposes for you. He will see you through. He will give you what you need to accomplish. All his desires and plans for you. His plans for you, they are wonderful. They are good. Jeremiah says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Don't lose hope. Don't let your faith falter. Trust in the Lord. Allow him to see you through whatever it is you're going through. After assuring Peter that he had prayed that his faith would not fail him, he encouraged him to return to him. You see, Jesus knew that Peter was going to fall. He knew that he was going to deny him. He knew that Peter would lose hope and crumble in fear. But he also knew that there was still hope for Peter. He knew Peter was going to fall, but he invited Peter to get back up again and to come back to him. Jesus knows that we too will fall. He knows we will blow it. He knows that we will still sin and fall short of the glory of God. But he always invites us to come back to him. Whenever we fall, he's there to lift us back up, to get us back on our feet again, and to call us to continue walking after him. His love for us and his desire for us is not contingent upon our ability to never fall short, to never fail. It is based upon the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior. He loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us knowing full well we will continue to fall short. And he continues to call us back to himself each time that we do. What an amazing God we serve. What an incredibly gracious and kind and loving God we serve. Amen. After Peter returned, he had one command for him to strengthen his brethren, to serve them, to minister to them, to strengthen them in their own weaknesses and in their own falters. Peter was to be an example of the grace and love that was available to each and every one of his brethren, that they too can be assured of Christ's prayers for them and of his loving and welcoming arms calling out to them each time they fell short. The call to ministry and service did not go away even though Peter failed. Christ called him back to himself restored him, and he used him to reach thousands and thousands of first century believers. But what's the main point here as it pertains to greatness? I think it has to do with knowing and understanding that Christ is for us and not against us. I wrote it this way, greatness in God's kingdom is possible because of what Christ did for us and continues to do for us each and every day. He is for us. He died for us. He died for you. He rose again for us and now He lives to make intercession for us, for you. Okay? He knows we will falter, but He still lovingly calls us back to Him, back to service, back to ministering to those around us. He uses all things for good to those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. We are able to Achieve greatness only because of what Christ has done for us and what he continues to do for us interceding on our behalf. He is for us. He is for you. Let's continue in our text to see what else the Lord has for us today. Read with me verses 33 and 34. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. We'll stop right there. Peter was very bold and he was very sure of himself. He dismissed the notion that he would falter or churn from the Lord. He proclaimed he was ready and he was willing to go to prison and even to die for the Lord. But we know such was not the case. And Jesus knew that as well. Jesus confronted Peter, told him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, before the beginning of the next day. It's nighttime, and he says, hey, before the sun rises when the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter was so sure of himself, so confident of his strength and his wherewithal to stand in the face of any sort of opposition. Peter's self-confident boasting ought to serve as a reminder to us all of the deception our hearts can lead us in. We don't know our hearts We don't know the capacity of deceit and wickedness within them. We need to be careful not to boast in what we can do in our own strength and in our own ability. You know, some of the giants of the faith, they fell in areas that were supposed to be great strengths of theirs. Do you guys realize that? Abraham. Okay? Abraham's greatest strength was his faith. He's known as the father of faith, right? I mean, that means you're pretty good, right? If you're considered the father of all faith, ooh, you, you're a man known for your faith, right? And yet, on more than one occasion, his faith faltered when he lied about Sarah being his wife as he traveled about. and He told her, hey, tell everybody you're my sister, because he didn't trust that God would protect him. Moses was known for his humility, his meekness, his quiet, calm demeanor. Numbers 12 tells us that he was the most meek person on the face of the earth. There was not another person on earth more meek than Moses. And despite this fact, we read of how he lost his temper. He spoke rashly with his lips. He struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock, thus misrepresenting the Lord. And for that, he was kept from entering into the promised land. Peter was a bold man, a courageous man, one who wasn't afraid to step up and to speak his mind. But even though this was seen as a great strength of his, he ended up denying even knowing the Lord three times. The scriptures attest in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to humble ourselves. And not allow pride in our own strengths, in our own abilities to lead us into temptation and set us up for a great fall. Greatness in God's kingdom comes to those who will humble themselves before the Lord and trust in His strength, not their own. Let's look to these last verses and we'll wrap up our study for today. Read with me verses 35 through 38. And he said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now, he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Look, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Before departing the upper room, Jesus takes the opportunity to address all of his disciples, telling them about how things were about to change and that they would need to be prepared. Jesus began by questioning them about how things were when he sent them out previously. He asked, you know, hey, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? And his disciples replied was, nothing, nothing. This is uh, talking about when Jesus had sent them out two by two as they went out ministering to the people in the region of Galilee, preaching to them the kingdom of God. Jesus gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Jesus instructed them, As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. And you guys know the disciples, they went out and they did amazing things for the Lord. They encountered all sorts of support. They were welcomed and greeted by many. Ministry was exciting. Nearly everyone was happy to have them. But Jesus said that things were going to change. There was a coming conflict that would change the public perception of Jesus and those who followed him. Jesus changed his instructions to his disciples this go-round. Now, he says to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. Jesus told his disciples that the things written about him still must come to pass. Jesus was going to be numbered amongst the transgressors. He was going to be arrested and gathered together with other criminals, and he was going to be sentenced as a criminal. These things written about him come from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, all of chapter 53 speaks about the sin-bearing, suffering servant sent by the Lord. It reads in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, He was oppressed, and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So He opened not His mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare His generation? For He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of My people He was stricken. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the great, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Instead of being the well-respected and sought-after rabbi who brought healing and provided food for the needy, Jesus would be seen and treated like a common criminal. His life would be taken from him, and all who followed him would now face similar situations. John records for us that on that night in the upper room that Jesus reminded his disciples he said to them remember the word that i said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you but it would seem that the disciples didn't get what Jesus was saying to them for their response was lord look here are two swords And Jesus simply responded, it is enough. It would seem that the disciples took Jesus' words to mean that they needed to arm themselves, get ready to attack. You know, their mindset is still on this idea of God, uh, Jesus coming in and establishing a kingdom, leading a revolt. And so they're like, hey, we've got two swords. We're ready. But later on, we find that wasn't Jesus' desire whatsoever. For when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out one of those swords and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And when that happened, Jesus called out to Peter, telling him to put the sword away, put that sword back in its sheath, that this was part of the cup that the father had given him to drink. The response, it is enough. It actually can be understood a couple different ways. It could have been that Jesus was affirming the disciples and telling them that two swords would be enough for the 11 of them. But again, this doesn't make sense. Two swords wouldn't be enough to fight off the attacks and persecution they would be under. Nor did Jesus ever really advocate for people taking the sword and striking people. Another way of understanding this statement, it is enough, is to see it as Jesus saying, I don't want to say anything more about this matter. It's enough. The word enough, it can speak of something being enough and the need to desist, to stop doing something. Perhaps it was Jesus' way of saying, you know what, I'm I'm done talking about this. He didn't have time to sit there and re-explain everything. They were operating upon a divine timeline, and it was time to get going. It would seem that this is a more plausible explanation, interpretation of this statement. That Jesus was done speaking about it. It was time to move on. He just says, you know what, it's enough. Time to go, guys. Like... I can't rehatch this all we just went through all this i just explained to you how i'm going to die and you guys are still have this mindset of okay we're going to take up arms and we're going to lead a revolt you know it's just time to move on it is enough time to stop talking about this well what do we glean from these final verses and the instructions that jesus gave to his disciples i think it's speaking about the balance between divine provision and human responsibility. There's a saying out there attributed to Oliver Cromwell, the English military leader of the 1600s, that says, trust in God and keep your powder dry. You may have heard that statement before. You may understand what that means. The phrase means to always be prepared to take action yourself while trusting in God to fight for you. The uh, allusion to gunpowder is that the soldiers, it was because the soldiers had to keep that gunpowder dry in order to be ready to fight when required. You know, the Bible has a similar saying in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 21, verse 31, it states, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. There's a need to be prepared, but ultimately we trust in and place our hope in the Lord. And I believe that is what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples, that the seasons were going to change and that they needed to be prepared for those changes. They needed to continue to trust in God while at the same time doing what they could to be ready for whatever the Lord would allow to come their way. And I believe and think that those who become great in God's kingdom are those who know how to strike the balance between relying upon the Lord and doing what is possible to be prepared greatness in god's kingdom requires us to trust in god and to be prepared for whatever he may bring our way now looking over it all there's there's one more thing i think i'd like to note just in case um it's not clear okay We noted how greatness in God's kingdom is about serving others, doing so faithfully and continually, how it's only possible because of what Christ did for us and continues to do for us, how humility is needed for greatness, along with trust in God and doing our own part to be prepared. There's one thing else I want to highlight in case it's not seen or understood. Jesus is the standard by which we measure greatness in God's kingdom okay? Greatness in God's kingdom is personified in Jesus Christ. If we want to be great in God's kingdom, and again, I do hope we want to be great, we need to follow the example that Jesus Christ left for us. You see, Jesus came to serve others. That was his purpose. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus said, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was faithful to serve his Father, to fulfill his will. He always did what pleased the Father. He did not back down from fear, but faithfully endured all things, even the cross of Calvary, where he cried out, It is finished. Jesus was and is forever faithful. And Christ humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus trusted in the Father and he committed all of his ways to him. He prepared himself for each and every moment that he faced. He would spend hours in prayer, readying himself for all that God had for him. Jesus is that perfect example of what greatness in God's kingdom looks like. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And so if you, know, you have uh, circles of people that like to debate who is the greatest of all time, the correct answer is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the greatest of all time, okay? There is none like him. He is the standard. He is worthy of all of our praise, and all of our worship and all of our service is worthy of our very lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to dive into your word, to allow your word to just minister to us. And Lord, as we look at this lesson on greatness that you had for the disciples and that you have for us, Lord, you desired them to be great. It wasn't that it was bad that these disciples wanted to be great. They just didn't know the way to greatness. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have that similar heart, that we want to be great. We would also understand the way to greatness in your kingdom, how it's different from the way the world uh, acts. Lord, that greatness in your kingdom is about serving you. It's about serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about being faithful. It's about trusting in you, God, and, and doing our part, Lord. It's about realizing and understanding that you are on our side, Lord, that we are capable of being great because of what you've done for us and what you continue to do for us as you intercede for us and pray for us each and every day. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be great for you, Lord, that we would be considered great in your kingdom, that we would faithfully humble ourselves, walk before you and surrender and be yielded to all the things that you desire to do in us and through us. Lord, that we would look to you and look to your spirit for strength to live a life of faithfulness, to, to uh, be great for you. And so, Lord, we know that we can't do it in ourselves. We have no confidence in our own flesh. We need you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill us, that you would empower us by your spirit, that we might be great for you. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.